Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Fair Dowdy. And we've covered several historical imposters on this podcast. Their stories are actually some of our favorites to tell. And with the ones we featured so far, a lot of them at least, uh, Lambert Simnel, False Dimitri, Princess Caribou are some examples, there are usually some common themes running through their stories. For example, the imposters are often pretending to have some royal connection. There's almost always some sort of motive behind their imposter scheme, sometimes a grand one. And the imposters are usually pretending to be someone specific, or at least they're pretending to be one someone. That is not the case, though, with today's podcast subject, Ferdinand Waldo Demera, who's often called the great imposter. Demera took on several bogus personas throughout his long and storied 20th century imposter career, something we talked about in those earlier ones that you wouldn't be able to pull this off in the 20th century. Apparently, you could. Um, and he would pose as everything from a psychology professor to a monk to a prison guard. Often he was stealing the identities of actual people, but regular people, not royalty or celebrities. And he wasn't just taking on their names and titles, but he was taking on their actual jobs and performing them, their job duties. So we're going to take a look at Demira's wildlife of deception, how he pulled off these imposter identities, and of course, his most famous charade of all, which was pretending to be a surgeon on a Canadian Navy ship. Sure, we have everybody squirming in their seats by now with that possibility. So first, of course, we need to tell you a little bit about who Demera really was. He was born in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1921, and by most accounts, he seems to have been a really, really smart kid. But according to a 1952 Life magazine article by Joe McCarthy, Demera really didn't apply himself at school, academically or otherwise. So if he was smart, it didn't show up in the classroom. As a teen, for example, he played on the football team at Lawrence's Central Catholic High School, but he was never one of the starters because he didn't listen to the coach. And although he read a lot on his own, he didn't really put much effort into his schoolwork. It's interesting, there's this picture of him in that Life magazine article, and he just looks like a total jock. I mean, he has kind of this clean-cut haircut, and he just has this kind of smug, you know, teenage look look on his face. Um, You know, so he looks like a regular kid. And in that life story, his father, who was a motion picture projectionist, said of Demera, quote, I love the boy, but I don't know him. He's good and he's kind and he has a really brilliant mind, but I've never been able to understand him. I don't think anybody else understands him either. And of course, he said this years later when Demera was older, but at least it gives us a little insight into his parents' attitude toward him. So even though he wasn't a go-getter when it came to academic accomplishments, he does seem to have had some ambition. He wanted to be somebody. It just wasn't himself, and it wasn't him in his current life. So by the age of 16, he ran away from home and joined a Rhode Island monastery. But after about a year there, the brothers decided that Demero just wasn't really cut out for the monastic lifestyle, and they thought that instead he might be better suited as a teacher. So Demero moved on. He tried another monastery. Apparently that didn't work out so great either, because by about 1941, he enlisted in the U.S. Army, another venture that proved to be pretty short-lived. Yeah, he went AWOL 
pretty soon after he enlisted. But that wasn't the end of his military career, as you might assume that it would be. A week after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, he enlisted in the Navy without ever notifying the Army <laughs> that he was even around or of this change. And while he was with the Navy, they sent Demera to hospital school, and he became a medical corpsman. He soon tired of this role as well, though. He tried to apply to officer candidate school after that. And he did this by forging some documents and pretending that he had a college education, which, of course, we know he didn't even graduate from high school. But he did a pretty bad job with the forgery. It was one of his first ones, so he wasn't very good at it yet. And they rejected him. So he went AWOL again. So it was after ditching the Navy, after ditching the Army, too, that Demira really began the pattern of assuming other identities that he'd stick with for pretty much the rest of his life. First, he decided to become Dr. Robert L. Finch, who was a man who had a doctorate in psychology. Demira had never met Finch, but he came across his name and credentials while trolling through the course catalog of a college where Finch had been a faculty member. According to an article by David Goldman in Biography, Demira made this identity more official looking by writing away to the college where Finch had worked and getting a copy of his transcript, which ultimately made it more credible when he approached people and applied for jobs as Dr. Finch, that he had Dr. Finch's actual transcript. And that's eventually what he did, though initially he tried his hand at the religious life again. First, he lived for a short time as Finch at a Trappist monastery near Louisville, Kentucky. Then he moved on to an order of Catholic teachers in Chicago and took courses in things like rational psychology and natural theology at DePaul University. And he apparently made straight A's while he was there. But he moved on right before he was supposed to be ordained as a priest. In that life story, that life article we mentioned earlier, he said that he couldn't go through with it without telling others the truth. So it's like he had some guilt. Some guilt about becoming a priest under Under, under an assumed identity. So at that point, he moved on to his first university job as Robert Finch at Gannon College in Erie, Pennsylvania. And there he taught general, industrial, and normal psychology, so quite a course load, and pulled all of this off, he later explained, by just reading up on the subjects and staying ahead of the class. And he said that, quote, the best way to learn anything is to teach it. So it seems like he kind of had it all figured out there. He figured out how to be a professor, but he didn't stick around there either. He moved on to California, where he worked as an orderly in a sanitarium, and then moved on to Olympia, Washington, and taught psychology again, this time at St. Martin's College in Lacey. So he's moving around a lot, but he's not really getting caught. So... Life, in that article in Life magazine that we mentioned, Demera told them a little bit about his tendency to move on frequently and why he did so. He said, quote, In this little game I was playing, there always comes a time when you find yourself getting in too deep. You've made good friends who believe in you, and you don't want them to get hurt and disillusioned. You begin to worry what they'll think if someone exposes you as a phony. And he said he even kept this little stash of money to... Uh, just, you know, as a little savings, a little nest egg for when he needed to move on. Get out of town. Yeah, exactly. And he called it his mad money. So he would keep that in the reserves. So this is exactly what happened to him in Olympia. He got exposed. Damara got in too deep. He became part of the community, was even made a special deputy to the sheriff. And then one day the FBI showed up and they charged him with desertion from the Navy. After that, Damaris served 18 months in the U.S. disciplinary barracks in California. 
So once he got out of the barracks, he consulted his course catalogs again, a great place to find a new identity, and this time chose the identity of a biologist named Dr. Cecil Hammond. And once again, he got the guy's college records, even his birth certificate, things that would make this fraud a little more believable. So once he was armed with Hammond's personal records, DeMero went on an occupation spree, really, similar to the kind he had gone on as Finch. He studied law for a year at Northeastern University in Boston, and then he entered a seminary in Maine where he told them he was a prominent Boston physician, Dr. Cecil B. Hammond. So he wasn't just trying to lay low. He was promoting himself as this new identity, really using the credentials. Exactly. And after he was in the seminary, Demera took the religious name of Brother John and was sent to study theology in New Brunswick in Canada to prepare to take his vows. And it's while in Canada that Demera meant the true owner of what would become perhaps his most notorious identity, Dr. Joseph Sear. Sear was fresh out of medical school and treating Brother Boniface, who Demera was studying under. Sear was pretty impressed to meet this guy who supposedly had been such an eminent physician in the States. And so he and Demera became quite chummy with each other. Sear even asked for his opinion in treating Brother Boniface's rheumatoid arthritis. And Demera suggested bee venom, a treatment that he'd read about in a medical journal recently. And Sear also wanted to become friends with Demera because he had this great interest in getting licensed to practice in the United States. He was networking. Exactly. And his good friend, Brother John, offered to use his connections to help him out. Of course, in order to do this, Brother John would need Sear's records and credentials to present to the medical board in Maine. And that's how he got Sear's personal records and information. In talking to Life magazine, he later said, I didn't steal his papers. He gave them to me. And in a way, that was the truth. He probably had a little more faith in him, though. <laughs> so, of course, Demera never presented Sears papers to any medical board when he returned to the United States. What he did do, though, is ditch the seminary and then double back to Canada. According to Barbara Smith's book, Hoaxes and Hexes, Daring Deceptions and Mysterious Curses, Demera showed up at the Royal Canadian Navy's recruiting office in New Brunswick on March 13th, 1951, and volunteered as services as a doctor. And Canada was by then involved in the Korean War, and they really, really needed medical officers. They were so desperate, in fact, that they were willing, according to the CFB Esquimalt Navy and Military Museum, to squish Demera's enlistment process into just a couple days. Normally, the enlistment process would have taken months, but they fast-tracked it. And according to Smith's book, Demera later recalled that the medical officer selection board seemed only to be concerned with whether or not he was the type of doctor who was into experimental medicine because they did not want any Canadian sailors being guinea pigs. Which is kind of funny when we see what happens in a minute, but within a few <laughs> funny days, in a horrible funny way. in a not funny way, but after a few days, Demera was commissioned as a surgeon lieutenant and received his first assignment at the Naval Hospital in Halifax. He'd never had anything besides some basic first aid training at this point, so he'd been able to fake his way through his scams before, but I thought that it would be pretty much impossible at this point. However, Demera quickly de- developed a strategy that got him through. Again, according to Smith's book, he managed to get some books and materials that covered treatment for some of the most common illnesses and injuries. So that was one thing. 
but he also consulted with other doctors a lot. You might think that this would expose how little he knew, but he actually developed a good reputation as a guy who worked with other doctors and valued other people's opinions, and he'd pretty much go with whatever advice the other doctors gave him, and he mostly got by in that way. According to an article by Dorothy Grant in Medical Post, Demira also had a go-to treatment plan for anyone who had something like a sore throat or a bad cough. He would just give them a huge dose of penicillin. So sorry if you don't happen to have a bacterial infection. Well, that was something else that just got him by. Demira was comfortable with the strategy at the hospital, but after a couple months, he got transferred to the sick bay on the aircraft carrier Magnificent. There, he didn't perform quite as well as he had in the hospital in Halifax. According to Grant's article, his commanding officer even said in one of his reports that he, quote, lacked training in medicine and surgery, especially diagnosis. Then, when the Magnificent was docked in Halifax, Demera, posing a seer, had what was for him a really unique experience. He fell in love. According to Smith's book, the young lady's name was Catherine, and she wanted to marry Demera. She tried to arrange a meeting between him and her family in Montreal. But while Demera boarded the train to get there and went all the way to Montreal, he chickened out when he was supposed to get off the train, and he couldn't bring himself to actually come out and face them, which is kind of strange considering how easy it usually was for him to deceive people. It also goes back to his quote, though, that he didn't like getting in too deep and Mm -hmm. starting to hurt people and disappoint them. But they did stay together a little bit after this failed meeting. But Demera, as Dr. Sear, soon got his next post as the medical officer on board the destroyer HMCS Cayuga, which was bound for Korea. And Demura's first challenge aboard the Cayuga came right away. The captain had a painfully infected tooth, and he wanted it pulled immediately. So you can imagine treating people's sore throats up until this point, and suddenly you have a infected tooth and you're in charge of it. Yeah, and he didn't, I mean, he didn't know anything about practicing medicine, but he, at this point, he had at least done a little bit of stuff in the hospital at Halifax, but when he got on the ship and into this situation, he hadn't ever experienced anything with dentistry before. So he had to buy himself a little bit of time and he excused himself to his cabin to consult some medical books and try to figure out if there was any Novocaine on the ship. Luckily there was, and he was able to extract the tooth successfully. And after that, things went smoothly for a while. Demera was actually really popular with the other guys on the ship. But once they made it to the, once they made it into the North Korean battlefront, there was a lot more for him to do. Stuff that went way beyond treating colds and pulling teeth. The best example of this is when they came by a boat carrying three critically wounded South Korean soldiers. And the one who was wounded the worst had a bullet lodged right next to his heart, and Demera had to open up his chest to remove it. Yeah, well, and he supposedly did this with a room full of people looking on, so there was no way he could hesitate or act like he didn't know what was going on. There was also supposedly a pretty rough storm going on at the time that was pitching the ship from side to side. As the story goes, the surgery was a success, and Demera went on to perform a few other really major surgeries, including a lung resection or removal, which he'd read about in the British Journal, The Lancet. According to that Medical Post article, though, there's some considerable debate about whether or not any or all of these major surgeries ever took place. 
But something must have gone on because a Navy public information officer aboard the Cayuga decided that they needed to brag on their awesome surgeon a little bit. Damara said later in the Life magazine article that he tried to talk the guy out of it. After all, publicity was the last thing that a person like him would want. But it didn't work. A story was prepared and sent out to the press back in Canada. And Damaris' fears did come to fruition. One of the people who read the story was Mary Sear, the real Dr. Joseph Sear's mom. She immediately contacted her son to tell him someone was impersonating him. And Dr. Sear, in turn, got in touch with the Canadian Navy. So on November 21st, 1951, the Cayuga's captain received a radio message that said, quote, We have information that Joseph C. Sear, Surgeon Lieutenant, is an imposter. Remove from active duty immediately. Repeat immediately. Conduct investigation and report the fact to Chief of Naval Staff. So the captain, the same guy who had had his tooth pulled by Sear, didn't want to believe this news. He even called Demera, whom he just called Joe, and told him that it was, quote, a lot of rot, and even told him to, quote, carry on with your duty while he figured it out. But sure enough, Demera was sent back to Canada a few days later. And the Royal Canadian Navy was so embarrassed by the situation, they didn't want to create a big stink and thus have even more publicity around it. So they discharged Demera honorably, gave him whatever back pay he was owed, which amounted to, I think, nearly $1,000, and they turned him back over to the U.S., Interesting thing is, even after they realized that they'd been duped, his former shipmates still really loved Demera. They even sent him a Christmas card later on with a poem called, quote, Because He's Our Friend in it. And part of it went like this. He may be six kinds of a liar. He may be ten kinds of a fool. He may have faults that are dire and seem without reason or rule. But we don't analyze. We just love him because, well, because he's our friend. So Demera really seemed to inspire this sort of affection, no matter who he was pretending to be. And as far as frauds go, he really was quite lovable, or he seemed to be. After a short break, during which he was interviewed for that Life magazine article in 1952 that we've mentioned a few times, he did go back to his imposter ways for a little while at least seems almost impossible that he would be able to do so again, especially after being exposed in such a way and doing this very public article. But in 1955, he became Dr. Benjamin Jones, yet again a real person who was president of the Northeast Mississippi Junior College. And as Dr. Jones, he got a job as a lieutenant of the Guard in Texas's Huntsville Penitentiary. While he was there, he really did a lot of good work. He organized sports tournaments, schooling. He helped defuse confrontations between prisoners, and according to Goldman's article, a prison official later said that Demera was, quote, one of the best prospects ever to serve in this prison system. If he could only appear again with some legitimate credentials, I'd be proud to hire the man again. But ultimately, Demera saw a prisoner reading the Life article and realized that the jig was up, so he left. I guess he had some of that mad money on hand. And when he cashed a check in Jones's name, though, the police caught up with him, and he spent some time in jail yet again. By September of 1956, though, he'd shown up in North Haven, Maine, as Martin Gojert with a school teacher certificate, and he got a job teaching at the local high school. He was teaching English, Latin, and French. 
According to a 1957 Time magazine article, DeMera again became a big part of his local community. He formed a Sea Scout troop. He ran Sunday school classes at the local Baptist church and basically played Santa at Christmas time. He set up a P.O. box in Santa Claus's name and all the kids would send letters there and he would reply to each and every <laughs> one of them. By February of 1957, though, DeMera was exposed again through the Life magazine connection, and once again, the friends that he'd made were totally shocked. They even wanted to defend him in court because they liked him so much. Ultimately, DeMera ended up getting off easy with a suspended sentence, and the judge even said to him, quote, On each occasion, referring to each occasion of fraud, deliberately or otherwise, you were doing some good. Which I guess is an interesting point. Yeah, it is. I mean, I don't know if that cancels out stealing someone's identity, but it is an unusual thing to do if you're in the business of stealing people's identity. It's true. I mean, usually you'd think you'd be stealing a bunch of money from people or something, Mm -hmm. but he actually seemed to try to accomplish things in a lot of these He did. So for the last 20 or so years of his life, though, Damira gave up on stealing identities. He lived as his as himself under his own name, even though he still switched jobs a bit. And for a while, he worked as a chaplain at a hospital in California, where strangely, he ran into the real Dr. Joseph Sear again. Yeah, Dr. Sear had finally gotten that license to practice in the States. And he <laughs> looked up one day when he was in an operating room in California. And according to that Medical Post article, he recognized Demera, even though most of his face was hidden by a surgical mask. Demera eventually died of a heart attack in 1982 at the age of 60. According to his New York Times obituary, he was miserable for most of that latter part of his life, according to his doctor. It seemed like he was really happiest when he was pretending to be other people. But to this day, no one can really figure out what his motivations were. Was it boredom, short attention span, or was it just that he had a mental illness? I think most people probably go with the latter. Regardless of why he did this, though, it has made her a fascinating story. Uh, Author Robert Crichton wrote two books on Demira, and one of them, The Great Imposter, was made into a film starring Tony Curtis in 1961. On the question of motives, Demira once told Crichton of himself, quote, I'm a rotten man. Then he said that his actions were instigated by rascality sheer rascality. So he clearly had a different view of himself than a lot of people who got to know him and were saying, no, this is really a good guy. Let's go easy on him. Um, He didn't seem to think much of himself. Additionally, and on a different note, some of the institutions that he duped into giving him other people's credentials contacted Demera after his story was exposed. They wanted to know how he'd done it so that it didn't happen again. According to that Life article, he refused to completely divulge his methods in this respect. However, he he once still said to Crichton, quote, I don't mean to be boasting, but my lurid example has been instrumental in getting colleges and businesses to change their sloppy ways of handling confidential information and records. In other words, your privacy and your records are safer today because of me. And I have to say, I certainly hope that that's the case. I hope that our records are much safer than than that and that you can't just right away and get someone's birth certificate, for example. Or pick an identity in a course catalog. It's kind of a a horrifying thought. Yeah. It's interesting, though. I mean, you have to wonder why people didn't catch on to this more often or why they did kind of continue to like him, even though he had this perception of himself. And and he once said, Damara once said, that 
it had to do with people kind of allowing themselves to be fooled, like he could fool them because they let him. And it sort of reminded me, and I think I mentioned this, it reminded me a little bit of the H.H. Holmes podcast where we were talking about how people didn't want to come forward and say that they thought something felt wrong or they felt creepy. Didn't want to shake things up. Exactly. And the way Demira put it is, I think he said something like, people would rather be liked than right, Um, which is sort of a So he's a less creepy H.H. Holmes. In a way, yeah, much, yeah, less dangerous H.H. Holmes, maybe we should say. But I'm interested to know what other people think of this. I mean, he said that he thinks our records are safer now. But one, I think in that biography article that I read, the author kind of conjectured, I wonder what he would have done in this day and age with the Internet at Mm -hmm. his disposal. So I'm kind of curious to know whether our listeners think that something like this, you know, every other day there's a massive credit card security breach. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, That's true. I mean, we always think of it now in terms of financial stuff, but you have to wonder next time you sit in your dentist chair. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know my dentist has her diplomas on the wall, but I guess he could have always. He could. I mean, have had the birth certificate on the wall or something <laughs> like that. But um, I don't know. It gives us something to think about anyway. And I think with that, we will wrap up on this episode. If you have any ideas for us or any thoughts about being an imposter or uh, this sort of fraud or any kind of anything that you want to share with us or a new topic that you want to suggest that has absolutely nothing to do with us because maybe you're tired of hearing of imposters even though we're not. You can write us at historypodcast at discovery.com or you can look us up on Facebook or on Twitter at Missed in History. And if you want to learn a little bit more about the more modern problems we were talking about, we do have an article called How Identity Theft Works probably won't get too much into using course catalogs to to steal a name, but should teach you some things. You can look for it by searching for identity theft on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.